Hello, everyone. Art Tomasetti back with you for the April 2023 Flight Test Safety Podcast. I want to start off with a reminder that tomorrow, April 26th, is the last day to register for the Flight Test Safety Workshop being held in Wichita. Now, in addition to our tutorial on risk management, we have a great lineup of presentations and a technical tour. You might even have a bit of free time to go and check out the Wichita Troll. Now, surely that piqued your interest. So go ahead and hit pause on this podcast and register to join us May 2nd through May 4th in Wichita. There's a link in the podcast description. Go on. I'll wait right here. Okay, welcome back. So let's start off with a quick look back into aviation history. 26 April 1962. At a non-existent secret location in the Mojave Desert, Lockheed Chief Test Pilot Lou Schalk was scheduled to take the first A-12 ox cart for a high-speed taxi test. A specially constructed runway had been built for this, which was about 8,000 feet long. According to the internet, which I know didn't exist back then, but of course now knows everything, he had received secret instructions to take the aircraft known as Article 121 Airborne. I mean, secret airplane, secret location, secret instructions, secret code names. How is this not already a movie? So Lushok roared down the runway and lifted off and got to about 20 feet above the ground and stayed there for almost two miles. The aircraft was oscillating badly, so he set it down straight ahead on the dry lake bed. A few minutes later, the distinctive nose of the aircraft appeared out of a cloud of dust and sand as Shock taxied back to the runway. Apparently, some equipment had been hooked up backwards. I know, what are the odds? And subsequent flights were made without difficulty. But now on to this month's focus. We have part one of two of an interview with Ken Katz, who's a principal engineer at Collins Aerospace, Ken is a senior member of SFTE, commercial pilot. He's got experience in more than 25 types of military aircraft. And he's the author of three books about military aircraft, including The Supersonic Bone, a development and operational history of the B-1 bomber. And our topic today, conveniently enough, happens to be B-1 flight test lessons learned. So let's listen in. All right. Today on the podcast, I have Mr. Ken Katz, uh, who's joining us, who's actually a volunteer who reached out and had some interesting topics he wanted to talk about. So, Ken, thanks for being with us today. And I wonder if you could just start off by giving our listeners a little bit of your career background. Well, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to participate in the podcast, which I enjoyed listening to. I've been captivated by aviation aerospace since I was about five years old. I grew up during the Apollo program, and I proceeded to build a collection of model airplanes that was the free world's second largest air force at the time. <laughs> so I studied aerospace engineering with an Air Force ROTC scholarship, and unfortunately my glasses kept me out of flight school. But while I was there, I learned that there were these people called flight test engineers who flew an aircraft and did engineering, and it took me about a half a second to say, that's what I want to be when I grow up. And fortunately, the Air Force actually assigned me to do exactly what I wanted to do, which was to be a flight test engineer out at Edwards. And after I completed my four years at Edwards, I left the Air Force. I went to work for Boeing as a flight test engineer on the V-22 Osprey program. Since then, I've worked in a variety of jobs in aerospace and information technology, and also I've obtained some graduate degrees in aerospace engineering and manufacturing. Currently, I'm a principal project engineer with one of the major aerospace and defense companies where I lead teams developing digital flight controls. 
I'm a, a senior member of the Society of Flight Test Engineers. I hold certification as a project management professional. I'm an avid general aviation pilot with a commercial certificate and an instrument rating for single and multi-engine airplanes. And I'm um, the author of three books about military aircraft. Most recently, the book titled The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber. Great. Um, so you and I exchanged a couple of emails before uh, setting up the interview today. And we had a couple of things that we thought would be great topics to talk about. So, so I want to start off with one of the points that you suggested, which was really a simple one, flight test fundamentals. And share your thoughts on that. Well, let's start off with the question of why should we study the B-1? Because in flight test, we're sort of by definition focused on the new and the future. So why should we study the B-1, which first flew 48 years ago? Well, I posit that aerospace in 2022 is a mature field, and there's very little that's actually completely new. Mostly what we do is we advance technology in aerospace is we take long-standing ideas, things that have been around for decades, and then we apply new materials, new electronics, better computational capabilities that enable them to be implemented in ways that we previously couldn't do. But I think that the basics remain unchanged. So to be very specific about the B-1, the last time the U.S. Air Force and the American aerospace industry flew a new bomber was the B-2. That was back in 1989. And we're told that its replacement, the B-21 Raider, which was just rolled out a couple of weeks ago, is going to have its first flight next year. Right. What that means is that the youngest person who has personal experience with the first flight and envelope expansion of a new bomber is pushing 60 years old. And, and speaking as one who's pushing 60 years old myself, the term youngest and 60 years old is not really a natural combination. <laughs> so I think it would be most beneficial to learn from the past, particularly if you believe my statement that the basic principles of our discipline haven't changed. So that's, that's kind of my motivation for this. And, and plus, I wrote a book on the B-1, so I, I'd like to bring that in. Sure. Um, the, the first lesson that I bring in is that the fundamentals of risk mitigation uh, in flight tests are always in favor. And so it's a basic principle of flight testing that you start at the most benign test point and you incrementally progress towards the more demanding portions of the envelope. That's not just true in flight testing. It's also true, for example, if you're going to learn how to fly, you start on a nearly windless day in VMC. You don't start at night when there's a 300-foot ceiling and a gusting crosswind. So there's also a basic principle that flight testing validates other methods that precede it. For example, there's simulation, there's ground testing, there's analysis. Not only do those other methods cost less, but you can't crash an airplane when you're at uh, zero feet AGL, zero knots, and one G. So if you've done these other methods at zero feet AGL, zero knots, and one G, and then you flight test, and the flight test method results, excuse me, not methods, results diverge from the, from the answers that you've gotten elsewhere, you need to have a bright flashing caution light go off. Because what that means is you don't understand what's happening. You really ought to close that gap in knowledge before you press on to the next test point. So back to the B1 as a case study. The B-1 was a very challenging aircraft to test, not just in its era, but I would maintain at any time and any place. Um, not only did you have the normal configuration variations, things like landing gear, flaps, slat position, so on and so forth, but you also had those big variable sweep wings. You had a speed range that went from low subsonic to Mach 2 plus for the original B-1A. 
a little slower, Mach 1.2 for the production B1. The most important part of the flight envelope was low subsonic terrain following flight, excuse me, high subsonic terrain following flight, which, which has a whole set of challenges associated with it. You had a high uh, range of gross weights and you had a, a, a long CG range over that long fuselage. The long fuselage was also highly flexible, so that required an active structural mode control system. The airframe was longitudinally unstable, and the B-1 was designed in a period when digital fly-by-wire technology wasn't ready for production aircraft. And put that all together, and you also have a large envelope for weapons delivery. So for an airplane that first flew 48 years ago, that's an awful lot of challenges that seem pretty relevant today. Right. So... You know, if you go back and review the flight test records, which I had an opportunity to do and interview a lot of the people who did the flight testing, and, you know, when I was researching my book, it was clear that the B-1 team was applying the fundamentals, and the fact that it worked out very, very well, uh, there was one tragic mishap, which we'll talk about later, in, uh, you know, in this episode, but in general, um, they did very demanding testing by any standard, including 2022, and they did it both very well and safely. For, for example, let's take a couple of very specific case studies here. When the B-1A evolved into the B-1B production version, the maximum gross weight of the aircraft increased from 395,000 pounds to 477,000 pounds. Percentage-wise, that's a big increase. Right. It's the same same airframe size, same wing size, but um, you, know, you just went up uh, 80-something thousand pounds. And that aggravated the longitudinal instability issue because obviously for a given airspeed, you have to fly at a higher angle of attack, which gets you further into that range of instability. Now, the B-1 has a full authority analog, not digital, but analog fly-by-wire flight control system, and it's working in parallel with a mechanical flight control system. In order to handle this extra weight and, and, and hence higher angle of attacks, the heavier B-1 added two new features to the analog stability and control augmentation system. They were called the stall inhibitor system, which is called SIS, and the stability enhancement function, which is called CEF. So you needed to have SIS and CEF thoroughly tested, obviously. Right. And the primary risk during this testing was loss of control of the aircraft. Now, with an airplane as big as the B-1B, you can't have a spin chute on board. So um, this was, you know, potentially very hazardous testing, and uh, you know, one of the um, one of the things that you use to mitigate that isn't available. So what did they use to mitigate it? I mean, the the, the first thing was the basic you build up from the most benign condition to the most challenging test point, and you do that in small increments. With uh, SIS and CEF testing, that was typically one degree of alpha. Right. Uh, they rehearsed missions before they flew them in the engineering simulator. And not only did they rehearse the missions, but they rehearsed knock-it-off procedures, recovery procedures, things like that. And, and when they gathered uh, aero data during flight tests, they fed that back to improve the simulation. Now, all the testing was done in highly instrumented aircraft. For example, they wanted to know what percentage of the flight control actuator authority was remaining. And that was being telemetered to the mission control center. 
the, the engineers in the Mission Control Center were looking at that data coming from the airplane, and then they were also looking at the data that had been run uh, in the simulator, and they were comparing the two. So if there was a divergence, you know, beyond tolerances between what you were seeing on the airplane and what you had seen in the simulator, it was knock it off. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's come back home and, and understand what's going on. So these are, these are basic things, and obviously today you would have uh, more advanced simulators. You wouldn't have necessarily printed off script charts like they had 30-some-odd uh, years ago. But the basic principles are the same. Do you know, was the test team pretty stable for this testing? Are you keeping the same folks doing this day in and day out? To the best of my knowledge, it was pretty stable. Yeah. And in fact, if you want to understand more about this, there were some uh, great SETP papers back in the 80s, uh, usually co-written by uh, Addison Thompson, right. who was the uh, North American test pilot who won the uh, Kitchlow Award for his work here, along with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Randy Gaston of the Air Force. The, the, another area of testing that had significant risk was uh, terrain following. And terrain following is absolutely essential to the B-1 CONOPS. So the B-1A, which was the canceled version, had a dedicated terrain following radar. It was the same one that had been used on the F-111F, so that, that cut down the technical risk. Right. It also had a separate forward-looking radar, which was used for navigation and weapons delivery. But all that changed in the B-1B, which was the production version. The two radars were replaced by one multi-mode offensive radar system that had a phased array antenna. And what the radar did was it rapidly shifted between modes, and basically it could use its uh, phased array radar to change the, effectively the beam shape without, with, while having one antenna. So for terrain following, that meant that the radar took a snapshot of the terrain following, of the terrain profile. Then the terrain following guidance law used that snapshot while the radar operated in another mode, typically some kind of mapping mode. And then the radar switched back to a terrain following profile, took another snapshot, and then went back to whatever else it was doing. Interesting. So in theory, this was a great thing. The radar was lighter. You know, you didn't have two radars. You had one. And it was more reliable because it, it, what the radar really was was effectively two F-16 type radars with a with new software and with a common antenna. So instead of having one forward-looking mapping radar and one terrain-flying radar, you had two radar channels, either of which could do both. So it was just a more reliable solution. And it was lighter. The, the risk of, of the technical risk here was that, that you had a new radar and you had to integrate it with the terrain-following software in the aircraft and the avionics system, and all that was pretty immature. Uh, the risk of terrain following flight testing is that you hit the ground. Right. <laughs> and, and that doesn't end well. Never. So, so, so one major risk mitigation was that, you know, the, the development work was all done daylight VMC. Now, they, they would eventually test it in, in, you know, at night and in, uh, in uh, more uh, degraded visual environment. But the basic testing was all done daylight VMC. And they used, a, again, a, a build-up technique, just like they did during SIS and CEF. So the key variables here include the ride quality. You could set that in as soft, medium, or hard, and that's, that's really just what are the maximum vertical Gs, both positive and negative. The terrain clearance height and the terrain characteristics. And, and also the aircraft weight, which meant that terrain following testing was somewhat dependent on the SIS and CEF testing. 
The most benign test point was a soft ride, 1,000 or 2,000 feet AGL, flat terrain. And, you know, you work your way up to the most extreme condition, which is hard ride, minimum allowable terrain setting, and, and steep mountainous terrain at heavy weight. And, and, you know, moving along that continuum took slightly more than five years. Wow. So, um, you know, it was very much a buildup find a problem, fix the problem, and then, you know, go back and test that you didn't screw anything up and then continue to move along until you went to the next one. It was, uh, it was definitely challenging. Hmm. However, you know, I mean, to their credit, first of all, both the SysCEF testing and the terrain following testing was accomplished with no mishaps. Um, it took a long time. In fact, it, when the B1B had its IOC in 1986, neither of those capabilities was functional. But, but the, 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 the concepts here of, of incremental buildup, of uh, mitigating uh, uh, risk by using flight tests to validate other methods, feeding flight test data back into the other methods, aborting the test if, if your flight test data in real time, based on real time analysis, if your flight test data doesn't match your, your previous analysis and simulation, that worked great. And I think that those lessons are as relevant in 2022 as they were in the 1980s. Yeah, and I think I would agree with you that you know history would say that incremental buildups uh, definitely show that uh, you are positioned in a better risk situation uh, by taking those smaller steps. And, you know, unfortunately, the world we live in today wants everything yesterday, right? We want second day shipping. We want we want things done in next day kind of stuff. So. Uh, the, the patience to to tolerate that incremental buildup, I think, is is a challenging endeavor for those in the flight test world today. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But but you know there, there is some evidence in many parts of our lives, and not just in flight testing, that when you try to do things too quickly, you actually slow yourself down. Right. Okay, we will pick it up with part two of my interview with Ken next month. I hope to see you in a few weeks at the Flight Test Safety Workshop in Wichita. Find me there and let me know your thoughts about the podcast. Or, as always, share them with us in the comments or via email. And until next time, be safe, be smart, and be ready. The Flight Test Safety Podcast is sponsored by Time to Climb Training and Consulting. Motivate your team to succeed, accelerate towards your goals, and elevate to a higher level of performance. On the web at www.time2climb.com.